Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Amen. Good morning, church. If you can turn to Luke 12 with me, um, I'm going to tell you now this parable that our Lord gives uh, laid me low a few times this week, uh, which is a poetic way of saying I realized I am a deadbeat sinner in many ways in need of the grace of Jesus. It convicted me of... um, short-sightedness, of being myopic, of thinking primarily about what is good for me and not what is good for the kingdom of God. And so I'm hoping it'll do that for you. But to that end, I'm going to ask you to make a deal with me. You cannot be thinking about like your neighbor or your wife or your husband, your kid or your aunt or somebody else during this. You need to be applying this to your own heart and to your own life. And if you do, I think it'll do for you Um, what it is still doing in me. All right, so we're going to read this together, um, and then we'll break it apart, and we will sit together under the authority of our Lord Jesus. So Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what will I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry." But God said to him, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So I was patronizing towards this man the first few times I read this, because I'm like, I would never do that. Uh, Verse 1, just to set the table for you, give you the setting of this thing. Verse 1 says there are thousands, a crowd of thousands around Jesus, right? And so this guy has to like weave his way through that crowd of people who are probably there with like dropsy or they're demon possessed. These are people with real problems and they know Jesus can heal them or he can uh, give them some great answer. And you, you kind of elbow, elbow your way through that crowd to get to the front so that you can ask him to settle a financial squabble you've got with your brother. 
but this is what you do. This is how you behave if Jesus is not your treasure, but instead is the means to the treasure that you really have, which is that cash from your dead dad's bank account. He calls him teacher. That's interesting because he doesn't actually want to be taught anything, right? So why does he do that? Why does he say, teacher, rabbi, tell this guy to give me money? He doesn't actually want a lesson. He's going to get one, but he's appealing to Jesus' authority. I know you are a teacher. I know people listen to you. I know people submit to the word that you give. I know you infuriate the, the pharisaical hypocrites that all of us in ancient Israel are seeing. I know that when you speak, people listen. Therefore, tell my brother to give me my share. He uses Jesus. And, candidly, I have used Jesus many times in my life. It's wicked. And this parable is not just meant for unbelievers. That crowd of thousands had believers in it. I'm sure of it. It's convicting to me. All right, so let's break it apart, verse by verse, line by line. Let's go through the parable together. In the beginning of verse 15, he gives a prologue. That whole verse 15 is kind of a prologue to the story. He said to them, first part of the prologue, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Take care. Why does he say that? Because covetousness, greed, is going to be something that you have to be aware of for the rest of your life. I hate to be the downer here. There's certain passage. I don't know if Michael intentionally gave me a passage that is very hard on people. I haven't really thought about that before. Am I getting all the Luke passages that are hard? But the, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. He says, be on guard against covetousness because these are tides that will always come back. Earlier this year, I read a biography of Lindbergh, the guy who flew across the Atlantic Ocean. And he bought this island uh, that was off the coast of North France. And I, I didn't even know islands like this exist. But for most of the day, it's connected to the mainland in France. But then at night, I think the high tide comes back in and all of a sudden you're on an island. And so he could go out in the middle of the day and he could walk around and he could walk to France. But then at night, he would be on an island again. That's kind of like what covetousness and greed are. They're going to come back every day. You are not ever going to reach a point where you're safe from the temptation to greed. Ever. Ever. We are always in danger of thinking that our lives, that our continued hopes and happiness and pleasure is in what we can possess materially. For the rest of our lives, we'll have to be on guard against this sort of clutching and grasping for possessions. They cannot be our hope of continued joy and safety. This guy thinks that, right? He says, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So he's thinking, I'm set, I'm good. I've, I invested in, what was the stock that blew up two years ago? What was it? GameStop, thank you. Yeah, so he's, I mean, this is like, he's thinking that. He's thinking, I invested in GameStop, and now I'm good, I'm set. I don't even know, did that work out for anybody? I'm not, I'm not an investment guy. Did, did I hear no? Did it literally not work out? Good to know. Now I can, when the next one comes up. Um, you will have to, I have to, put sentinels around my heart and not let it run after any created thing, not just money, but any created thing as though it is a god. I'll have to, for the rest of my life, vigilantly apply this, this verse here from Psalm 20. Um, it's a very good song written uh, from Psalm 20 that my kids like by a band named My Soul Among Lions. Um, but these two verses from Psalm 20 are the heart that I'm going to have to vigilantly build in my own chest over the next 40 years or however long God gives me. Verse 7 says, Some 
The psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You can insert anything you want for chariots and horses. It's any created thing. They collapse and fall. They who trust in any created thing, they who worship any created thing, collapse and fall. That's what happens to this man in this parable. But we rise and stand upright. Any unguarded heart will eventually be overrun by covetousness, which Colossians 3 verse 5 tells us is idolatry. Paul says in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is you worshiping a created thing. And any created thing where you put your ultimate trust and your hope is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. This man is idolatrous. Both the real one who came up and tried to borrow Jesus' credibility to settle his squabble and the parable man. You cannot escape this temptation by denying it's around and you can't protect against covetousness or greed through mere willpower, which is my default mode of operation. I try to tackle any sin or any temptation through willpower. I'll literally like write out rules for myself. It's, that, that is pharisaical. It will never work. You can't fight a real threat with cardboard soldiers which is what willpower is. It's a cardboard soldier. It, it, it'll cave in the face of an actual uh, covetousness. The only way to meaningfully, lastingly deal with covetousness is to be so satisfied in Christ that your heart is not going into withdrawal from lesser things anyways. And by the way, notice, he says this to the whole crowd, right? So he gives the prologue. He said, beginning of verse 15, he said to them, he said to them, not just the guy who wants the inheritance. And the them, we find out from verse 1, is a crowd of thousands. So guys, we cannot imagine Jesus telling this merely to a banquet hall of stockbrokers. He's not just talking to the 1%. You who make six figures, beware of covetousness. The rest of you are okay. He says this to everybody because every human heart is prone to this because every human heart that's still beating anyways is unglorified as of yet. We still have indwelling sin and we still want to find our security in created things. All right, that's the first half of the prologue there. The second half, for or because, so don't be covetous, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So that because tells you there are grounds for not being covetous. There are grounds for not being idolatrous. It's sort of like if I told my son, you don't need to worry about starving, I could give him the grounds for that confidence. I could say, because daddy works hard, so we have money. And mommy works hard, so that it can be prepared and you can eat it. That's why you don't have to worry about starving. Jesus says, don't be covetous because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, don't act and think as though your hopes for a forever safety of joy and rest are in your possessions or your money because they are not. The thing that you want called life can be found and kept safe somewhere, but not there. We are incredibly short-sighted. This week, so I told you this convicted me over and over again. This, <laughs> this proves my point. I was thinking about my fantasy football team because that's the illustration I was going to use, and I picked this thing up to look at it. <laughs> That was not planned. 
That's a visual proof of my ongoing sanctification. I'm playing Owen this week, and he's supposed to beat me. And I'm bummed out about it. So this week I got convicted because I kept looking. I was trying to trade for a running back, and I kept looking at it. I spent probably an hour of real time this week trying to figure out how to get a better running back than Rex Burkhead. And I couldn't get it done. And I had this thought. You can totally laugh at my expense. You have my absolute permission. But it's, it's going to get serious in a second. I had the thought that I think I have literally spent more time looking at ESPN's fantasy football portal than praying for my kids. How gross is that? And then I had this thought. He says here, your soul, in a minute, we'll get to it, your soul is required of you. That's the language Jesus, is, Jesus uses in the Gospels a lot about how we're going to have to give an account of the thing we borrowed. I thought, there's going to be a day, I'm trembling right now as I say this, there's going to be a day when my kids will know exactly how much I did or did not pray for them. And that's true for you. There will be no secrets anymore. Everything that was whispered will be shouted out from the rooftops. And we're so short-sighted. Like I act like I've got a hundred more years to live. And I've got all the time in the world to do the real stuff like praying for people. But right now I gotta handle this problem. It's so short-sighted. Jesus is telling us here, a man's life does not consist of his 401k or his new deck or his Audi with the moonroof or his six-in-one fantasy football team cruising to a championship. I hope, Owen. Neither does it consist in his neighbor having those things while he himself goes without them. A woman's life does not consist in picture-perfect children whose beautiful manners are exceeded only by their beautiful smiles and who always remember Mother's Day. No bad or neutral or great thing no bad or neutral or great thing is the sum total of our lives because our lives are hidden with Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one through whom and for whom all things exist and the one in whom we live and move and have our being. This man in this parable could have actually enjoyed his possessions his abundant possessions, if he hadn't thought his life was in them. But every blessing turns into a curse when you treat it like a God, which I am prone to do and which you are prone to do. If you want to be dissatisfied with something good, think that your life is in it. If you want to lose the blessing of some precious gift, treat it like a God and you'll lose it. All right, so then he gets into the story itself. Verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. It took me a while to see that, but I, I, I looked it up in the original language, and it's true. Jesus does something there. What's the subject of that sentence? Aaron, you can probably answer. What's that? The land is the subject. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So right there in the actual language, did you get it right, Aaron? Yeah, I, I, I figured. It took me like a day and a half. It took you 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> So the land is actually the subject, the way Jesus says it. The man is the recipient of what the dead earth just produces. But how does he act? He acts and lives like he has complete ownership and claim on this stuff that just comes up out of the dirt. Don't live like that. A steward, a responsible steward, does not live like a spoiled rich kid. 
And we as Christians are to know that we are responsible stewards of what has been temporarily lent to us. We do have ownership of it. There's a reason why there is a eighth commandment, do not steal. There's a reason why that commandment exists. There is real ownership in a sense. However, everything on this earth and in creation is ultimately God's. And so I don't get to act like this guy and think, I got a blessing. What do I do with my blessing that I have full ownership over without any concern over the God who made the sun beat down on the earth and made the rain fall into the soil and made the, the blade sprout up out of the soil? When your investment pans out, remember and dwell on the fact that you wouldn't have a mind or a body to make that investment if God hadn't breathed you into being and kept your heart pumping long, long enough for you to click buy. I don't actually do investments, so I'm, I'm assuming that's how it works. We're not like licking stamps and mailing things to our stockbrokers anymore, right? When your children obey and delight and surprise you, take thought of the fact that you wouldn't even have children if he hadn't knit them together, if he hadn't delighted to give you that blessing and to fill your quiver. Don't be like this man who assumes total claim on what he was lent. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Work the ground that he's given you well and hard. Yes, I'm not saying do not sweat over your life. You should be sweating over your life. But when that ground produces something, remember that he is producing that through you, not because of you. Verse 17, this man, after the ground produces what he's going to think himself rich and fat and happy off of, he thinks to himself, verse 17, he thinks to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He thinks, what shall I do? Jesus tells us his thought pattern. What shall I do? He doesn't think, what would God have me do? Right? This land just produced a lot of stuff that I don't even need. What would God have me do? Not how he thinks. His first thought is how to cling to and clutch this abundant gift that God caused his land to produce. This is how greedy and covetous hearts react to a blessing. They think, what do I do? Where do I keep it? How do I store it? How do I make sure it stays good for the coming winter or the next winter or the winter after that? How do I have to get it set up so that I have to work as little as possible for the rest of my life and I can just enjoy this stuff and eat and drink and be merry? A content heart like Paul's in Philippians, a content heart receives a blessing from God and invites his neighbors over and pops the cork in that blessing and sips it slowly and offers some to everybody and sits there and sings a hymn of thanksgiving to God. A covetous heart buys a steel-reinforced safe with a biometric lock and puts it in the basement where nobody can get to it. Content hearts worship God with their blessings. Covetous hearts worship their blessings as gods. Calvin writes this about this thought that the man has. Wicked men are driven to perplexity in their deliberations because they do not know how anything is to be lawfully used. So this man doesn't have a playbook for what to do with a blessing because he's covetous. And next, because they are intoxicated, you could translate drunk, with a foolish confidence which makes them forget themselves. So this man isn't sober 
And he isn't able to think rationally about what to do with this blessing because he is drunk with greed, idolatry, covetousness. How many hoarded blessings to men like this, to hearts like this, how many hoarded blessings go unenjoyed, unused? They're like that talent in the other parable that Jesus has that's similar to this one. They just get buried. Jesus comes back or the king comes back and he rebukes that man who buried the talent. It was meant to be used, to be employed or deployed or enjoyed. When your next blessing sprouts up through the soil, don't be like this man. Ask, what would God have me do with this? You're going to get blessed. What are we, seven months away from tax time? Six months away from tax time? I don't know. It's one thing my wife does for the household is the taxes. So, but we are some number of months away from tax time. And most of us who have children will probably get a little bit of a blessing from Uncle Sam. I don't, I'm not libertarian enough to say that all income tax is theft, but I'm going to get some of it back. And when I get it back, I should ask God, what does he want me to do with this blessing? Verses 18 through 19. The man says, I'll do this. So I've got a plan now because I've thought about it. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I'm going to bury that talent. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You can tell what this guy's gods are by how he wants to spend the rest of his days. His God is his belly. That's how he wants to spend the rest of his life. And you can tell that they're bad gods by how it ends. Calvin says this on, on this little monologue from the man. And yet this pride is accompanied by distrust. For those men, when they've had their fill, are still agitated by insatiable desire. Like this rich man who enlarges his barns as if his belly, which had been filled by his former barns, had not got enough. And I, and I had noticed that, but that, that is true. This man is distrusting God. Because you could think, if you're this guy, wow, look at what God caused to come out of the ground this year. I should give it all away, and he'll probably do that or more again next year. The God who blessed me once can certainly bless me again. But he doesn't. He thinks, I see blessing. I got to put it away and store it so that no matter what happens in the stock market or who's president, I'm good. That's how I'll make sure that I'm good, is by building bigger barns. Hearts that are giving way to covetousness are like Gollum. How many Tolkien fans we got? You don't have to raise your hand. I can see you. I know which of you are Tolkien fans. I think I can do that with 90% accuracy right now, just by faces and how you dress. We... <laughs> I'm one of you. I'm allowed to say it. We read through those books, uh, and we were on our like third trip through the movies. We're at, this is just this is for free because they're not. They'll be at the eleven. My kids will be at the eleven, so I can make a joke at their expense. In Two Towers, does anybody remember when that orc head is on the spike and they come running up? Zoe, my seven-year-old, last night she was watching that. And she's like, "Why did they put up an orc scarecrow?" And I'm like. Well, that's a real head, honey. Like, they killed it. And they... So, but back to my illustration. Hearts that are giving way to covetousness are like Gollum. They'll never have enough, enough of the thing they crave, and they'll end up killed by the craving. And that's what happens to this man. He ends up dead because of his craving, because of what he's addicted to, his belly. 
Notice also this guy, I love that Jesus puts in this little detail. The man says, soul, I will say to my soul, soul. So that pronoun, my, this guy thinks he owns his soul. What does Jesus have God say at the end of the parable? Your soul is required of you. So Jesus tells us this guy looks, looks at his soul and thinks, my soul. I will say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. God shows up and says, that thing that you think is yours, that you have ownership of, give it back. So if you want to know one simple way to live wisely, take regular stock of two realities this guy forgot. One, your soul ain't yours. It's not. And two, you could die in 10 minutes. And live in light of that. And you will live a wiser life. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool. God calls him a fool. When God calls you a fool, you know you're a fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man is a fool. Why? Because he built his entire life, his way of living, his pattern of living on a false assumption. And the assumption was that his life was in his abundance of possessions, that that's where his safety and security and happiness were. He lived as though that were true, and it's patently false. And when you live as though something is true, when the motto or rule of your life is patently untrue, you are a fool. So this man is a fool. All right, let me give you four principles to apply, and we'll be done. Number one. Where you think your life is, I'm using it the way Jesus uses it there, your life is not in your abundance of possessions. Where you think your life is matters a great deal when the increase comes. So we see this with the real man, right? He's got an increase, or at least he may have an increase, the inheritance. We also see it, though, in the parable. This guy gets a lot of produce out of the ground. And immediately he channels that blessing to where he thinks his life is. He thinks his life is in his abundance of possessions or in being satisfied in his belly, in his flesh. And so that's where he channels all the blessings. When the sovereign God of all creation gives you a great blessing, you will channel it somewhere based on where you think your life is really found. So that'll mean either, A, your blessing that God gives you will be a great blessing to the world and the kingdom and part of your crown someday in glory because you used it well, taking stock of the fact that your life is actually hidden in Christ, or it'll mean that you hoarded it for yourself because you are acting and thinking as though your life is in your material wealth and in your possessions. But one of those two things will happen. You will either use, employ, deploy the blessing Inside your own walls, potentially, sure, but also outside, or you'll hoard it for yourself. Principle number two, where you are abundant is where you'll be tempted to falsely see your life being. So in the original language here, the way Jesus says it is something like, for not even in one's abundance, that prologue is kind of started that way, not even in your abundance is your life found. So ask yourself. Seriously, where have you been blessed? Where has your ground produced richly? That is where you need to be on guard. I took stock of that this week, and I had one 
very substantial answer of where the Thomases have been blessed richly. And I realize that is true. This principle has played out in my life. I am tempted to see my life there in that area, that little quadrant of the garden. For some of you, this will be material wealth, like with this man, but for some of you, it will be intelligence and skill. And for some of you, it will be health. But you'll, you'll have an area where you have been abundantly blessed by Almighty God. And God is not calling you to feel guilty about those blessings. That's not the call in this passage. The call, rather, is to not see your life in those blessings. The point is to not think your life consists of those things. And you will be tempted to do just that because that's where the ground is produced richly. So just be aware in that particular area of your life. Third principle, your soul will be required of you, period. If you live in light of this, there are a lot of things that matter a lot less that should matter a lot less. Other people's estimations of your abilities matter a lot less in light of the fact that you are gonna give an account of your soul. God's not gonna ask you whether or not you were as good looking as this other person made as much money as this other guy who chose a better career path. God's going to require an account of what you did with the talent he bestowed in you. And he's going to do it in what'll feel like a week. Your life is going to go by like this. I'm 37, so I'm older than like most of CTK. Not thankfully, Steve, I see you as soon as I say that, and I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. But I, Steve's only 38. But if you, are, if you are 25 or if you are 30, I can tell you, man, it goes by like this. My oldest is now 11, and Sarah showed me a picture last night of us at the zoo. It was like the Facebook Wayback Machine where it shows you memories from prior years. And we were feeding some goat at the zoo, and she was like, man, Wade looks so young. And I was like, thank you <laughs> for delighting in my former youth. But also, man, that felt like yesterday. Man, it does feel like yesterday. Your soul's going to be required of you fast. Live in light of that. Live in light of that. Live in light of the account of your life that will be known on the last day. Fourth principle, last one. Christ himself is the treasure. He's going to say later in Luke 12, Make sure I get this right. Yeah, in verse 34, Michael will probably preach this next week. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He's going to say that in the next section. Christ is himself the treasure. He is not merely asking you to be a Buddhist and just try to detach yourself from all pleasure in the world and, and to have no hunger at all, no ache at all, no pang or thirst at all for anything. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not stoicism. That's why C.S. Lewis is able to say things like, the problem is that our desires are too weak. We're satisfied too easily. Christ himself is the solid reality that's behind every echo of pleasure you taste everywhere else. There is no one in heaven right now with Jesus who is lamenting that he didn't get to remodel his kitchen, take a trip to Europe, we as Christians already possess what everybody out there is hungry for. We already possess it. We already have an inheritance that is kept undefiled, 
where moths can't eat and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. It's already ours. And the seal of that inheritance is not in some abstract corner of the universe. It's inside you. The spirit of God is inside you, praying for you on your behalf and reminding you Jesus Christ is presently, right now, enough. What Mary Magdalene knew outside that tomb when she realized Jesus wasn't actually gone is what we are free to know and live in, right of, live in light of right now. Every hunger and thirst I have in my parched soul can be met in the God I already have, the God I already possess through his own giving heart. I want to I wanna close with two uh, illustrations here. So one is, uh, I read in the New York Times a few years ago, it's a long-form article. If anyone's interested in after uh, hearing this little bit of it, I'll, I can share it with you. But um, there was a, a man who died with half a million dollars uh, in assets and nobody and nothing else to speak of. And so he was discovered like a week after he died because somebody could tell that somebody was dead in the apartment above them. And they go in and they can't even identify him because... There's nothing. He has no friends. He has no family. But he's got a lot. Of, he's got money. He's got a retirement account. He's got owns this quarter of a million dollar uh, apartment in Queens. And they spend months trying to figure out who are we supposed to give this guy's assets to. This is just a little bit from that article. They send in a cleaning company because there's no one else to claim his possessions. On a sun-kindled day a week later, six muscled men from Greenex, a junk removal business, arrived to empty the cluttered queen's apartment. Dispassionately, they scooped up the dusty traces of George Bell's life and shoveled them into trash cans and bags. They broke apart the furniture with hammers, tinny music poured from a portable radio. Some nuggets they salvaged for themselves. One man fancied a set of Marilyn Monroe porcelain plates. Another worker plucked, open, uh, plucked up an unopened jumbo package of Nike socks, some model cars, and some brand new sponges. Yet another claimed the television and an unused carbon monoxide detector. A spindly worker with taut arms crouched down to inspect some never-worn tan work boots still snug in their box. They were a size big, but he slid them on and liked the fit. He cleaned George Bell's apartment wearing the dead man's boots. Death is not social. It's business. No one need to have known George to get his money. On February 20th, a Queens real estate broker listed the Bell apartment at $219,000. It was the final asset to liquidate. Three potential buyers toured it the next day, and one woman's offer of $225,000 was accepted. Three months later, the building's board said no. A middle-aged company who lived down the block entered the picture, and at $215,000 was approved. Their plan was to fix up the Mart apartment, turn their own place over to their grown-up son, and then move in overwriting George Bell's life. For the recipients, five people from the will, some of whom were still alive, none of whom remembered much about George, people he met in passing at some point in his life, 
For the recipients, George Bell had stepped out of eternity and united them by bestowing his money. No one in the drawn-out process knew why he had chosen them, nor did they need to. They only needed to know him in the quietude of death, as a man whose heart had stopped beating in Queens. Before I give you the second illustration and, and pray, I say this in love. I mean that. I say this in love. If you are living with a treasure that is anything other than Jesus Christ, you are this man. And I do not want that for you. There are TV commercials that will make it seem like you can be really, really happy with a lot of shiny stuff that gets made in China. It's hogwash. Your life will be over in a minute. And if Jesus Christ is not your treasure, then what you'll leave behind are boots for somebody else to wear as they throw your stuff into garbage cans. So the second illustration. My, over the last two years or so, one of our bedtime stories has been Perpetua. And I don't know if any of you know her. I didn't know her until I started doing this story with my kids pretty regularly. But about 200 years after Jesus uh, ascended to be with the Father, there was this woman, young woman named Perpetua. She became a Christian, uh, and she had a, a baby boy. And she lived in Carthage, and this was during the time of the Roman Empire when they started compelling Christians to do a pinch of incense to the emperor, which sounds like nothing to us. But in those days, it was obvious what you were doing when you pinched some incense over a fire in honor of the emperor. You were saying the emperor was God, that he was Lord. She wouldn't do it. So her and some of the Christians that she was in a little house church with got thrown into jail. And her father, her diary is, uh, you can find it anywhere online, just search Perpetua Diary. Um, her diary tells the story of her father coming to the jail and begging her. This is a wealthy man. She comes from a family where she could go home. She could say, okay, Caesar is Lord and do the pinch and then still be a Christian. Go home, live with her father, and live a life of luxury with her son for the rest of her days. Eat, drink, and be merry. She would have had everything that the ancient world could provide. Her dad was that wealthy. And her dad's cries fall on deaf ears. And she is with uh, three or four other Christians thrown to the beasts. And one of the closing lines in the diary, because the end of the diary was written by someone else, uh, is how most of her friends have been killed by the animals, the wild animals, but there's a gladiator in there too. And she is ready to go. And she takes his sword and points it at her own throat. So this woman died having given away everything that this world would say was worth having. And she is far richer than George Bell. And she is far richer than any of us who are living for lesser prizes. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. It's Colossians 3, just four verses. If your life is not in your abundance of possessions, and Jesus is kind enough to tell us that, he is also kind enough through the Apostle Paul to tell us where life is found. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, and every born-again person in this room has been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Not like George Bell died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Please pray with me. We bring nothing to you, Father, other than what you have gifted to us. You are generous and merciful. And you have chosen in your good pleasure to save the Christians in this room and to seal them with your spirit and to have an inheritance for each of us. Father, help us to live in light of that. We are going to go through trials this morning, tomorrow, next month, five years from now, 20 years from now. There's going to be pain and tears. But if we remember where our life is, all of it, all of it will be endurable. We thank you for being who you are and for doing what you've done in Christ. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.